0: And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 160 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Paul Spiegelman about fostering culture in your law firm.
1: Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, FreshBooks, and Ruby Receptionists. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show.
0: So for the past six months or so, we've been growing and engaging an ever-increasing group of lawyerist insiders in a private Facebook group for lawyerist insiders. There are hundreds of small firm lawyers there now helping each other by asking and answering practice-related questions and engaging with us on the resources and advice we have on how they can manage and grow their firms. And it's a super interesting and engaged and supportive group of people. And I thought it would be really fun to pitch to all of you the opportunity to get into that private group for free, which is very simple. You just go to lawyerist.com slash insider and you can get an invite if you are a practicing small firm lawyer.
1: Yep, go to lawyers.com slash insider Join there, and we will send you an invitation to join the Facebook group. You can't join straight from Facebook. We need you to go and register on our site first. Uh, But it's a fun thing, and we have a lot more plans for the
0: insider generally. Yeah, and the reason we funnel people through the website first is because we want to make sure that everyone in the group is actually a lawyer because we don't want you to be subjected to pitches from vendors and consultants or PR agencies right. who would otherwise try to get in with our audience. And so we limit it to practicing lawyers so that you can actually support each other in your firms.
1: Yeah. So for today's podcast, we've got a brief sponsored interview with Gene Clausen from ARAG about the fundamentals of great client service. And then we'll hear my conversation with Paul Spiegelman.
2: Hi, I'm Gene Clausen. I am a legal industry advocate at ARAG, and I work to champion solo and small practice attorneys. Uh, to play a vital solution in the access to justice problems in America. I've spent nearly 10 years developing the ARAG network of nearly 13,000 attorneys. I'm a member of the Legal Marketing Association, and I also serve as the president of Group Legal Services. ARAG helps to close the access to justice gap by providing affordable access to legal help for moderate to modest mean income Americans. One of the many ways we're doing this is by connecting attorneys with clients they otherwise might not have access to.
1: Hi Jean, thanks for being with us today. And we are going to talk about client service fundamentals, which is no matter what kind of fancy technology people are using or if they're delivering legal services from oak desks and leather chairs, they kind of remain constant. So, what are some of the fundamentals? Where would you start?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, we're a big advocate of attorneys to be more client-centric, and that means incorporating simple things like Responsiveness. I would really start there. I think it's all about setting proper expectations for your clients to keep them up to date with maybe their case status. Let them know the best way to reach you by phone or email or text. And also keep a current voicemail recording so your clients actually know when you're available and when you'll get back to them. I think I can't tell you how many times I've heard that attorneys either from state bars or our own business, that attorneys aren't connecting with their clients or, or calling them back in a timely manner. So just even return Turning every voicemail, even if it's just to say what your availability is, I think really helps that client understand where you're at and really helping them overcome their situation.
1: One thing that we try to talk to people about is also talking to your clients about how they would like to communicate. For example, I know a lot of lawyers think, oh, I'll just send a letter and let them know. And like for me, if you send me a letter, I might open it three months from now. (laughs) It's a terrible way to keep in touch with me. And so I think being responsive uh, as you're talking about it probably means more than it means getting back to people and keeping people aware of things, but also making sure that you're on the same page about how you're going to communicate, right?
2: Absolutely. I think you said that well where you know, it's really being deliberate in how you design your business model to incorporate you know, that design. And all the technology in the world, I think you mentioned it earlier, you know, won't help if you're not just really looking at the fundamental basics of delivering great service that just can never be overlooked. Really putting you know, your consumer hat on is really important and kind of taking it from the perspective of what kind of service would you expect and would you be happy with the service that you're sharing with your clients? from a personal perspective.
1: I think that's probably something that not enough lawyers do, put on their empathy hat and put themselves in their client's shoes. And, you know, would I be happy with this? That seems like a pretty powerful way to gauge whether or not you're likely to be making your clients happy.
2: And just humanizing. We talk a lot about, you know, humanizing your practice. So people, you know, it's all about being human and providing that great customer experience.
1: What about change? You've dropped a few words here like design and client-centric that may not be a part of lawyers' vocabularies. (laughs) And so how do you talk to lawyers about that?
2: Position it from a way of really stay open to change. You know, the legal industry, especially now in this time, is constantly evolving, so you know we try to really collaborate with partners like you Sam and the lawyerist to really bridge you know the gap between the circle of influencers to the actual practicing attorneys and their staff. so don't forget about the staff. It's really important to educate the entire office and your firm on kind of staying relevant and staying current. And you can do that by really staying in touch with what's happening at your local bar, your state bar, and on a national level, or even staying connected through social media and other outlets that are providing really great content on everything from technology and what the latest and greatest tips are to those customer service fundamentals that we've been talking about.
1: I mean, because we're talking about change in what the world that your clients are functioning in, right? Like, you know, lawyers often think about legal technology, but technology changes the way your clients' businesses operate too. And it's helpful to stay on top of that. The way people communicate, interact with each other, the way markets change, those are all things that if you embrace them, you can take advantage of them, right?
2: Absolutely. Understanding the consumer is is huge Um, and understanding the changes that they're going in and how are they getting their services outside the legal industry and how does that align or match with the service that you're providing and reaching those consumers.
1: So if you want to know more about providing great customer service to your clients, ARAG has a free white paper, Eight Keys to Providing Great Service to Your Clients. And you can get it at araglegal.com slash podcast, all one word. And in case it's not clear from my pronunciation, Arag is A-R-A-G. Again, that's araglegal.com slash podcast. Thanks, Gene.
2: Thank you so much, Sam.
3: Hi, Sam. Pleasure to be on today. My name is Paul Spiegelman. I am A business person who's learned and grown along the way, like many of your listeners probably, I had a a long career in in healthcare after a very short career practicing law. Uh, But I found that uh, whether it's a law business or any other kind of business, there are choices that we have to make in how we run our companies. And over the years, my passion for business centered around culture and the relationship between driving an employee-focused culture and then uh, how that leads to not only a better company, but a more profitable company. And uh, in my healthcare business, we grew that business to uh, around 400 people over a 30 year career and ultimately sold that to a very large company and started a small a couple of other small companies along the way. But uh, always with this theory that if we created an environment in which people loved what they did, that would lead to customer loyalty. That customer loyalty would then generate uh, the ability to, for us to gain profits that we could invest back in our people. So over the years, I really became passionate and kind of an evangelist for this idea that uh, culture really equals leadership and how we lead our companies uh, makes all the difference in the world. Uh, And whether you're on the front line or you're the CEO, we all want uh, just a couple things in our careers. We wanna feel that there's purpose, that we're valued in what we do. We have the opportunity to learn and grow. So when I have the opportunity, I love to talk to leaders about that. And what I find is many people resonate with these kind of messages of running a values-driven business, but obviously quite often ask themselves uh, or me uh, how to do it. And so bottom line, there's a lot of practical ways that you can get involved in this kind of work and make a, a better life and company for yourselves and your employees.
1: Well, I'm glad you're with us today, Paul. Um, culture is something that we think about a lot internally at Lawyerist and that I think a lot of firms are starting to find on their radar. But before we start talking about culture, I'm curious about the like the three-word thing that you gloss over on all of your online bios, which is you are a lawyer and you, you practice law briefly. Uh, what did you do?
3: Well, I, I uh, grew up in Los Angeles and, and uh, after going to UCLA and always wanting to be a doctor and, and uh, getting a D in chemistry, I ended up... Uh, following in my dad's footsteps. And my dad was a a lawyer, had a small practice for many years, actually retired at 85 years old and had a wonderful career doing that. Um, And so I went to law school and I went right to practice with him, which is a small just business litigation firm and uh, loved working with my dad. Didn't really feel the passion for the business that I think even he felt. Mm -hmm. And a couple, maybe 18 months into it, uh, got the opportunity with my two brothers to uh, jump into business together, and uh, so that's what I did. And I, so I had the, my 18-month legal career. Uh, I look back and loved the education, and and I think it prepared me uh, in a in a really positive way for business. But got out early and uh, was able to just uh, go my own way on the business side, and uh, and it's really been an enjoyable ride.
1: So I'm curious, did they want you involved because? you were their brother and they trusted you or were they like, Hey, we, it would be helpful for us to have a lawyer and, and you've been a lawyer for 18 months. So why don't you come on board and tell us what to do about that stuff?
3: Yeah, no, it wasn't that. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, we all, uh, I'm not sure I had much expertise at that point. Um, but, uh, my brothers and I always wanted to do something together. We just didn't know what it would be and or when we would do it. And my older brother was kind of the born entrepreneur because, Mostly he couldn't really work for anyone else and came up with this idea originally to get into the medical alert business. And so like uh, many people do who start businesses, we just bootstrapped it. But we were a a 24-hour-a-day business from day one. And we responded to people who had medical conditions uh, in their homes. And one of us had to sleep overnight on a cot and shifts waiting for calls to come in. So... Uh, you just kind of do what you had to do. So we all had various backgrounds and together we, I think we made a good combination. Uh, but uh, we were, I think, probably hoping that I wouldn't need to use too much of my my legal background uh, if we just stayed out of trouble.
1: Well, and then so that, you know, the story of Barrel Health is, in brief, is you did that for a while. You got a big contract and kind of took off from there uh, and eventually got bought and then kept working on culture and at Stericycle. but. I'm curious, like culture is a buzzword everywhere now, and, and I think it's probably penetrating even our the legal industry's consciousness. But at what point did you realize that cultural was a thing that was helping to make your company successful?
3: It's a great question, Sam, because we really never thought about it that way. We weren't intentional about creating a certain type of culture or a certain business. But when early on, I think we might have had 10 employees at the time and we would hear from our employees comments like, wow, this is a really fun place to work. And we said, well, what makes it fun? And they said, well, you and your brother seem to genuinely care about us. We do things together uh, and you seem to really care. And, and we said, well, where did you used to work? And then we heard these stories about where people used to work. And I think we were young enough when we started our business that none of us had really worked in big companies or had some of these uh, experiences that people typically have when they don't feel valued in, in their work. And so we we realized that what we were doing was unique and that was pretty early on. And then we were, I guess, smart enough to think that we could take advantage of that, create this wonderful environment. We were essentially, our our core business was a call center business. So we contracted with hospitals all over the U.S. to answer calls for them on an outsourced basis. And when you think of call centers, we all think of the boiler room operation or the high attrition, low margin business. And you're not thinking about a great place to work. And we said, we're going to do it differently, and we're going to create this environment where uh, I mean, these are single moms taking 80, 90 calls a day from people that are upset about their health care. It's a really tough job, yeah. and yet, and yet, if we can show some gratitude and make it pleasurable for them, then our thought was they're just going to do better work for us, and and that became ultimately our secret sauce. And we said that as we. Start to differentiate ourselves in business. And in any business, we realize that over time we get kind of commoditized. We didn't want to charge based on price. We didn't want to compete that way. We wanted to compete based on value. And ultimately, we were able to charge a premium price for our services because we didn't sell what we did. We didn't sell the features and benefits of our service. We sold who we are. We made sure our customers understood that by creating this wonderful culture inside, it was going to benefit them as well.
1: Your culture kind of uh, emerged organically, it sounds like. Later on, when your company grew bigger or when you went to work for Stereocycle, it sounds like your job was a little bit more trying to create a culture um, and make it into a real thing that could be a selling point for the company. How do you go about doing that?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. In our business you're you're right it did uh, grow organically but as it grew organically over time we started to define it and what it mean to have a great culture and what were the components of that many little things that would uh, contribute to developing a great culture and and what we realized is that that culture is not just a vibe or a feeling that you get it's actually a defined process it's a recipe just like any other process in your business that you have, and and I believe that business leaders need to respect that culture process even more than many others. You know, we don't think about documenting the culture, and I think we do need to document it. We need to make sure that we consistently apply it over time. When you're small. Um, it's maybe a little bit easier to do that, but a big question people have is, well, how do you scale it as you grow? And as we went from 10 people to 100 to 400, um, then we put systems in place to make sure that that culture survived. And when I sold the company to this large public company called Stericycle, um, I got the opportunity to do something I'd never done, which is to work in a a large company. And in this case, uh, the company, I think the the five years that I did that Uh, I think when I sold it to them, they were about 10,000 employees and they grew to 25,000 in the five years Um, I was there. They did 30 to 40 acquisitions every year. So just imagine that challenge to try to create a culture or uh, institutionalize it. And so the idea there was, was really the same thing. Like I mentioned earlier, is that how do we make sure people understand the purpose of the business and why they're there? How do they feel valued and appreciated in the work that they do? How do they have the opportunity to learn and grow? And what we found was that the the answer was not so much in uh, the, the senior, the CEO or the senior leader, although they definitely had to Participate and sponsor and buy-in and support it. Then you have the front line that people that are really doing the work every day They love this kind of attention but when then you start to look at the middle managers the supervisors and people that have grown in the business and Quite often don't know how to do this kind of stuff and, and are focused on hitting a target or a number and not understanding the impact of spending time with their team growing their team Slowing down every day to show that they care about the personal lives of of their teammates um, And then learning how that's going to impact them in their business. So uh, I can't say I'm the expert in any of this um, But I did have the opportunity to go to a larger company and try to figure out how you can you can scale These kinds of things and uh, it's a long-term journey. It never ends whether it's a small or large business.
1: Well, and so what about, you've talked about going from 10 to 25,000. What about a, like a solo practice? I mean, a, a lot of, half the country's lawyers are in solo practices. Can you have culture as a solo?
3: Oh, yeah. You know, culture really is defined, uh, you know, in a couple ways. And many, many, many people look at it differently. But I, I think a lot of it is the extent to which your, your employees, uh, your team, yourself, are, are willing to do discretionary work and go above and beyond and really understand the, the, why you're there and have that permeate the business as well as the message, as I said earlier, that you deliver. Um, there's tons of lawyers, right? Tons of solo practitioners and small practices. And, and in this day and age, all of us have choices in terms of who we work with. And what I like to say is that no matter what business we're in, we're in the relationship business. Our method of developing those relationships, our methods of creating our ourselves as thought leaders in an industry, just like you've done, Sam, to, to expand your scope, allows you to build your brand, your personal brand. And I think that that's for a solo practitioner who's looking at this has to kind of stop and realize that that impression that the brand they make uh, on the outside all starts on the inside. And how can they develop that? Even if they have just an assistant or or a paralegal or whoever that's working with them, um, I think it's important no matter what size you are.
1: So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, I want to pick up on something that you dropped sort of in passing, but I think it's probably central, which is this idea of documenting culture and integrating it into the way you do things. So we'll be right back.
0: Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. Being a self-employed lawyer is hard enough, which is why dealing with your day-to-day paperwork on top of it all shouldn't have to be. FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy-to-use cloud-based time and billing software that will help you work smarter, get paid faster, and become more organized. With FreshBooks invoicing, you can create and send polished professional invoices effortlessly in mere seconds. FreshBooks can set you up to receive payments online, which can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. You can track your time either by using their mobile app or your desktop, meaning you'll always know what work you did, when you did it, and who you did it for. There's also a super handy deposit feature so you can invoice for a payment up front when you're kicking off a project. To feel the full impact of how FreshBooks can change the way you deal with your paperwork, FreshBooks is offering our listeners a 30-day free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section.
1: Ruby Receptionist is a live, remote receptionist service that is dedicated to helping lawyers win clients and build trust one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's friendly, professional receptionists ensure exceptional client experiences by answering calls live in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, collecting new client intake, addressing common questions, making outbound calls for you, and more, just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. More importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. For a special offer, visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018 or call 844-715-7829. That's 844-715-RUBY. Okay, we're back. And Paul, so you kind of ran right past documenting culture, but I know it's core. Um, and I think you're talking about values there. Can you run with that and, and tell us like what, what is the relationship between values and culture? And what's so important about values?
3: Well, when we think about a culture, or any process we have um, in business, in particular, there's got to be a foundation, where do we start? And I get this question a lot. And I think the foundation of a great culture is, is the, the mission and vision and values that um, permeate your company or your practice if, even if it's one or two people and quite often when we're that small we don't take the time to articulate what that is or we see some mission statement somewhere and we put a plaque on the wall and, and I'm not talking about the plaque on the wall. Um, this stuff has to actually be genuine and it's a really a process that you go through Um, And uh, I just did this with a small company yesterday where actually an organization that's been around a while but didn't have a a definition of what their culture was or what it meant to be a part of that organization. So I took them through a a visioning process, and there's many different ways to do that, the school of thought that I – I like to attack this with is really from uh, Jim Collins, who wrote the great book Good to Great, um, which is kind of a bible for business people. And he talked about this process where you looked at visioning and values, uh, in th- it, as having three components. First is purpose, and our core purpose, which is defined as how we make the world a better place, it might just be a phrase. Uh, in my healthcare business, it was connecting people to healthcare. That was our kind of our higher purpose. The second is our core values and our core values we defined as those behaviors that no matter what else changed in our business would never change hmm. And we think about things like integrity and accountability and Um, originality whatever whatever they are doesn't have to be one word it could be a phrase but um, those are really critical to the business and the third is what we call the future position which uh, is maybe what we think of as the typical vision statement put yourself out five years and you say okay what does our business look like today here's our size our scope this is what we're doing but getting back to the values, what I found, and I was a cynic like many around these value statements. I mean, a lot of people are, that, I feel
1: like the first yeah. thing you, you, you bring it up. I, I recently brought it up with a nonprofit where I'm on the board and, and it felt like everybody was like, Oh God, somebody's talking about mission crap again. Yeah. yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. And I, so I was the same way in my business until I went through that exercise. And I remember doing it at that point with a fairly large group of, they they weren't values that I came up with. I I wanted everybody involved in that. And then I started to see how they permeated the business. And the examples I would use were when I might be in a meeting with our leadership team and uh, we would be looking at a project that someone asked us to do that's in the non-standard project. And someone raised their hand and said, but wait a minute, one of our core values is never sacrificing quality. And I believe if we take on this project, we're going to sacrifice the quality of all of our work. And I Mm -hmm. thought, aha, you know, they're applying one of the core values. Or maybe that we're having an employee situation uh, that's really kind of sticky. And the manual says in Section 3A, this is how we're supposed to deal with it. (laughs) But someone raises their hand and says, hey, one of our core values is always doing the right thing. And the right thing in this situation is not what's in the manual. And I just thought, aha. This is guiding our daily decision-making. And that's when I knew that we kind of hit the goldmine around how values are used. It's the way we tell stories every day. It's the way we develop our reward and recognition. It's guideposts for people to uh, understand how to behave in the business. And again, you could be two people or 20 or 2,000. They became very powerful and became the foundation of our culture. And I believe it's the same in, in any company.
1: How do you make those real though? Like, especially if it's an aspirational value, right? Like, um, I hear, I, when I read about values and, and how you figure them out, um, everybody says, oh, you, you already have values. You just need to identify them. Well, what if you identify your values and then you realize, you know, we're actually really shitty about, um, making sure that people have balance between their work and their life at our company, but we want to be better about it. How do you decide that that's going to be your value? And then how do you actually make it real? And and on a day to day basis, so that people do say things like that.
3: Yeah. Well, I think um, it's not so, it's not an exercise to be taken lightly. You don't want to change them all the time based on the flavor of the month. Mm-hmm. These really have to be long discussions. It's not something you come up with in an hour and go, Hey, these are our values, and, and we'll review them every year and see if they, we want to change them. We the, we actually use them in ways to um, uh, very appropriately make sure we have the right people on our team. And if you think about times where you might have had to fire somebody in your company, it's most likely that you didn't fi- fire them because they didn't have the skills to do the job. You fired them because ultimately they didn't fit. And so what does it mean and how do we understand whether they fit or not in the organization? And we have to first go back to, well, how did they get on board to begin with? And what did we, how did we use our values in the hiring process? Um, To make sure we were screening for fit and not just for skill You know in this day and age there's plenty of people that have the skills to do just about any job We would hire for but uh, what we used to say is that we were going to Hire and make it very difficult for people to get in the door and put people through the ringer But once they're in we're going to make them part of the family so for even call center positions for every hundred resumes we went through we hired three people I remember our head of HR went through 17 different interviews, and we did that by dividing and conquering how we interviewed them to understand not only their skills, but whether they fit in the organization. We did personality assessments. We put them in different social situations. Um, we, we did our best to make sure that they fit uh, and really concentrated on that. The the tougher challenge is because I think we we make the best decisions we can. We never bat a 1,000%. It's when we start to realize that maybe we've made a mistake and we start to blame the person we hired or other people are talking and it's creating all sorts of problems. And what we need to do is look in the mirror and say, what could we have done and how do we have the courage to, to make the tough decision?
1: Well, and I suppose if you're hiring three people at a time, Two of them are getting fired.
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, (laughs) exactly. At some point. How do you prevent that uh, from
1: feeling like survivor?
3: Yeah, you know, it's I I think that, again, if you create uh, an environment that's known as a positive culture, which we did in our case, um, that was a great recruiting tool. We won nine awards as a best place to work company. I mean, who wouldn't want on on paper to work there? But look, not everybody's going to fit or people's lives change or or the company outgrows some of the talent that we have. And as leaders, we have to have the courage to recognize when that's happening to make these tough decisions. And quite often, we can trace back why that person doesn't fit to a particular or a series of our core values. So, it's just something that you start to build in and will will you'd be surprised how apparent it will become over time and we'd start every meeting by telling stories about our core values and and uh, if we rewarded people it was because they lived up to the core values so for the leader has to repeatedly talk about this stuff and and make it so that it isn't just the plaque on the wall but it is how you live every day and and we did have a time i remember when we started with four of them And and because we were a family-started company, there was a looseness in our business and our culture that people felt like at one point we just didn't have enough accountability. Mm. And rather than just start talking about accountability, we said we're going to make it a new core value. And we put a whole program and structure behind it, and it really then um, took off and stuck in the long term.
1: I mean you kind of have to stop and grade yourself on how well you're meeting your own values sometimes.
3: Oh, you do you really do and and uh i it's just something that's so critical and and when you're i can i can you know sense whether you're a uh, starting a, a new business or you're a solo practitioner in a law firm you're not you're not you're just thinking about surviving you're just thinking about getting that next customer right. you're just thinking about defining what your product or service is but i just can't um understate the importance of defining who you are the thing that the, of those three things that i talked about the things that can change is your purpose can change. You know, how you're making the world a better place, that can change. We review that every year. That five-year plan obviously is going to change. You know, what you think today is, is definitely going to change. But you want those things that remain constant and and they provide security for those that come on board and work with you.
1: You know, when you started talking about how you, uh, how you try to get that cultural fit during hiring, um, I expected a really – you know simple uh, nicely packaged answer but but your answer sounded a lot more like it's hard and you're going to fail at it sometimes so build in some safeguards uh, and backups
3: yeah there's just no way we're going to we're gonna always get it right, um, and uh, but especially when we're growing, we get sometimes so excited about we just got the budget to hire the next person, or we, our practice has grown, and so hey, we get to hire the next one, and you see a really good resume, and you meet somebody, and go, wow, this is perfect. You drop them in, you want to give them a computer and a phone, and and let them go at it, and 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 I just say you gotta slow down. Mm-hmm. You gotta slow down and go through this process and be really deliberate about it. Um, And try to do your best knowing that at some point you're going to fail uh, and then set yourself up to have honest dialogue going forward because all of us have stories of, of how we procrastinated, took too long, finally decided to move somebody out of the organization and everybody else is looking at you and saying, what took you so long?
1: Yeah. If somebody wants to start working on culture or or learning more about it, I guess, what are the steps they go through, I, I assume step 1 is if you haven't sat down and done your mission, vision and values, that's step number 1.
3: You know, I think it that that is step number 1 in terms of the process. But before that, what I always like to understand is um when if a leader's talking about wanting to do more in this area and let's say they haven't done it before, um it the one that 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 interest has to be genuine Mm -hmm. and then two the question is well whose job is it to do this work or to start this work and I and I like to say that the more inclusive you can be the better you don't want to go through this exercise and and hand it to the people that you work with and just say okay I've come up with this new thing so whether you have one or two other people in your firm or you're larger than that um, sometimes um, we have leaders who uh are more command and control style leaders, people who have grown up just saying, hey, look, I learned as a leader to be directive, tell people what to do, and it worked for me. The world's changed, and now this idea of more collaborative leadership and team-focused leadership has taken hold, and you need to create trust in those you work with that when you decide to go down this culture route that you're really genuine and you're gonna stick with it over time. So I think you need to be vulnerable with your team and just say, hey, this is uh, something that I think is important. I've learned that there's a, maybe a better way to do business. I'd like to do it with you, do it together. Once you get that buy-in, then you start with that mission, vision, values. Uh, and then you look at your other programs over time that show uh, you know, how we can do reward and recognition and training programs and other things and uh, many small things that can be done. They don't take a big investment. Uh, it's ultimately just starting by showing that you care Listening, uh, empowering your people to be themselves uh, that that you work with, and and uh, you'll you'll start to feel this feeling. I, I remember going to Stericycle, these these uh, very directive, command and control leaders who had you know years of success in the corporate world, just and their their success came from hitting targets, hitting numbers. They never felt what it was like to impact someone's life and someone's career. And when they started to focus on culture, they got that wonderful feeling as well. And so the message is you can do well and do good at the same time.
1: And I, yeah, I suppose the hard work starts after you've identified your values, then then you actually have to make them real and walk the walk, not just talk the talk. I, I mean, I think that's why everybody is so, you know, groans when you talk about mission, vision, and values, because they know that they've worked places that have those things. And there's a disconnect between what it says on, you know, on the break room wall or, um, or what they, what it says on the org chart and, and what people actually do and how they behave day to day. That's why, that's why people groan, but um, the challenge is to make it real and embody that culture.
3: Well, and the fact is that there are companies that live it well and companies that don't, and mm-hmm. whether you're starting your own company or going to work for another company or a firm, then, uh, then you have a responsibility to do your own due diligence to see if that is real, and that's by talking to the leaders, seeing how it permeates their business, seeing how you know you can walk in a place. My my first book uh, was called Why Is Everyone Smiling? Because people would come and tour our call center, and just walk around at the end of the tour, come and meet with me, and said, God, everybody just seems so happy. Well, you know, why is everyone smiling? I said, I don't know. You know, go ask them. But it turned out that you could just feel it by walking in the door. Um, that the environment cre- we created just made people happy to be there, and you could see it on their faces. And, and you can walk in, you know, even in my short legal career, you can walk in any business, any law firm, you can tell. You can walk in a restaurant, you can look around and say, you know, do these people look happy to be here? Do they? Do we feel like they're they're treated well? So. Um, I think that's, that's really where we start. And, and, and I can't um, overstate the fact that it is a long-time commitment. You know, Culture is not a project. Yeah. It, is, it is who we are. It evolves over time. We'll always be challenged by it. But the results – are really incredible. I mean, we were able to be five to six times more profitable than other competitors in our space. You know, there's books that have been written about larger companies that we've all heard of, like Southwest Airlines and Whole Foods and uh, Container Store and Harley-Davidson, these culture-focused, employee-focused companies that far um in terms of growth and profitability, uh, their peers. Why? Because they have this employee-first, mentality and culture and values that really mean something in the organization.
1: I think that's a nice place to end. And I I neglected to give a shout out earlier to Nicola Bood, whose Leaders Love Company podcast is where I first heard you talk. And her podcast is well worth a listen if you're interested in hearing from people like Paul or Ashley Cox, who was on a couple weeks ago. But Paul,
3: where can people find you? Oh, they can find me at paulspiegelman.com. And Lots of resources there, even to evaluate your internal culture in your organization. It's always good to set a baseline and measure where we're going. Uh, but I think uh, I'm so pleased that the legal profession has is taking a closer look at this as well, because uh, we're we're a business like any other business, and I think that uh, uh, lawyers and and their teams and uh, can feel this impact and grow even better companies and practices. Um, by embracing this idea that culture is a very critical part of our business.
1: Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Paul.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by
1: Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.